0: Hello, it's Daniel Bryant here. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about QCon London 2024, our flagship conference that takes place in the heart of London next April 8th to 10th. Learn about senior practitioners' experiences and explore their points of view on emerging trends and best practices across topics like software architectures, generative AI, platform engineering, observability and the secure software supply chain. Discover what your peers have learned, explore the techniques they are using and learn about the pitfalls to avoid. I'll be there hosting the platform engineering
1: track. Learn more at qconlondon.com. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Architects podcast, where we discuss what it means to be an architect and how architects actually do their job. Today's guest is Sid Anand, the chief architect and head of engineering for DataZoom. He's also worked at PayPal, Netflix, LinkedIn, eBay, and Etsy. It's great to have you here, on the podcast. And I'd like to start out by asking you, when you trained as an architect, how did you become an architect? It's not something you decided one morning you woke up and said, today I'm going to be an architect.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, thank you for having me. I would say it happened organically. I think the title of architect was a bit aspirational for me. And I think it is for many other people. As a software developer starting out, I think there are phases of one's career. In the beginning, it's all about gaining knowledge and learning from your peers and seniors, right? And part of that learning experience is getting exposure to different problems. And I was lucky enough to start my career around the birth of the internet. I graduated in 97 or so. I started off kind of in electrical engineering and then moved into computer science. And at that time, you know, the internet was taking off, right? I would say like 98, 99. And I had an opportunity to work as a software developer in a team in Morola, which didn't do a lot of software. It was mostly a hardware company. And as I began learning, you know, at some point I decided to go back and get a master's and formalize a lot of the knowledge I needed to be successful in that job. I came out, I had a good foundation. I started working in Silicon Valley. I started working for a company that built CRM software and I was in the systems team and I focused on performance. I learned that there was so much to learn, especially at that time, as so many new technologies were being developed, that I realized I was in the first phase of this career and I didn't know how long it would last. And it turned out to last maybe 15 to 20 years of drinking from the fire hose. I would just say I extended my college education by like 20 years. and. Every few years, when I felt the learning rate was dropping off, I would switch jobs. And at that time, you know, the cloud didn't exist. And a lot of the software packages that we used didn't exist. And a lot of things had to be configured kind of manually. And a lot of the sophistication in our systems didn't exist or in the software development lifecycle. So I got to learn a lot about how systems work and how software is developed how to ensure reliability and all the other illities. And I gained an appreciation for that. And I learned from those around me and definitely from those more senior to me. And I would consider that the first phase of my career of just learning. At some point in my career, I decided or I wanted or I aspired to be the person leading others because I felt I had gained enough knowledge about these systems that I aspired to be in a role where I could lead others and sort of own the entire system. And very early on in my career, I had this goal that I wanted to be a CTO. And in order to be a CTO, I had to see how three different companies build systems. And I felt like if I had at least three companies, and for me, those were eBay, Netflix, and LinkedIn, I felt at that point, I could solve any problem because I would know how each of these worked in all aspects
1: And they were divergent companies focusing on different things.
0: They had different verticals. They were in totally different verticals, but in the end, they were web companies. They all had different stacks to a large extent, and they had different ways of dealing with things or different approaches to solving technical problems. And in each company, I actually rotated through at least three teams. So in each of those companies, I rotated teams to understand how the entire company worked. And so after leaving LinkedIn, I joined a startup and I thought, okay, now I've got pretty good knowledge of how things work. And then I ended up going back to PayPal and finding out how a fourth company worked. But, you know, I think it's organic in the sense that there's this learning phase. And then for me, it was an aspirational phase to say, OK, at what point do people consider me the person who has enough knowledge to guide that company in their endeavors? And after at least being at two or three of them, I felt, let me attach this title to myself because that's what LinkedIn allows you to do. And then, you know, I learned that different companies have different expectations. Of what an architect does. And yes, that's kind of been my journey.
1: Okay, so let's step back for a moment because you said several interesting things about you know your organic growth as an architect. If somebody came to you, you know, said, You seem to be a successful architect, I'm interested in being an architect, how would you tell them to learn about being an architect? In other words, to sort of short circuit the process for them or you've given some idea about your career path, but how would you steer them to their career path to sort of benefit from your experience? That's a great question. I think I would
0: ask them what they want to achieve in the next five years. Like, where do they see their career going? What is it about their current role or set of responsibilities or their own view of the career that they're not happy with? What is it that they want to change? And Companies have two formal paths. You know, you start off as a software engineer, and then you become maybe a senior software engineer, and then you get to something called a staff software engineer, where paths diverge. At that point, you can be a manager, and you can go up the managerial track, or you can stay technical and go up the technical track. And if you stay on the technical track, then you can get to something called a senior staff engineer, principal staff engineer, distinguished engineer, and then some companies diverge. There might be a fellow, or there might be things between distinguished fellow, And typically the definition of these things is scope. So a senior software engineer owns a component, is a subject matter expert in some component of the entire system. A staff engineer is an expert typically in multiple components and therefore might run a scrum team, might be the lead for a scrum team, might also be a lead of multiple scrum teams. Because like under a manager, typically there might be more than one scrum team. There might be more than one staff engineer. But if there's a single staff engineer then that staff engineer is sort of the person that runs all the scrum teams for that manager but if there are two staff engineers for organizational sanity typically they'll divide up the scrum teams by this number of engineers when they want to get to senior staff usually at that point they're collaborating across multiple scrum teams multiple groups and they're at the level of a senior manager So that typically is what a senior staff is. And when they get to principal, they're kind of at the director level. So they would be attached to a director and help like overseeing multiple scrum teams, maybe around six or seven, depending on the company, under the direction of a director, right? So director might have seven, typically they say span of control, right? Five to seven is what, what is like advisable. So that director might have five to seven direct reports, Again, if they have a single principal staff, then that principal staff is probably spread out over five to seven managers and all their scrum teams. If they're multiple, they're divided. And then you keep going higher, right? If you go above the principal, you're what's called a distinguished. And at that point, you're attached to a senior director, right? Maybe a vice president, depending on how big your company is. And you're now overseeing 10 to 20 scrum teams. And then all of these people are still in the line of delivery. They're still responsible for executing a roadmap. So if you look at an organization, typically at the top you have a CTO and an SVP or a VP of engineering. The VP of engineering is responsible for executing a roadmap. That roadmap is usually owned by the head of product. And then the CTO sometimes is customer facing, but very much industry facing. Like It's deciding what should the roadmap be for next year. That's typically the CTO office. And when you're in this path of being like an IC, you're still in the SVP, VP of engineering organization, you're still responsible for delivery. But then what ends up happening is there are things that are outside of the path of delivery. They're not defined by product. And those are typically called the illities, the non-functional requirements. And those are beholden to other groups within the company, like compliance and governance and other things. So if you're in the financial or medical industry, You have to abide by certain governmental compliance rules. And so that will fall under architects. Security would fall under architects. Cost control would fall under architects. So there'd be a bunch of things that are not like customer-facing features that need to be owned by somebody technical. And that's typically what architects would do. Sometimes architects are in their own organization. Sometimes they're distributed across all of these directors. Yeah, typically that's what I would call it.
1: Okay, so that raises a very interesting question. In fact, it raises two questions in my mind, because when you use the word oversee, that's sort of a loaded word, because let's say you're a developer and you have a use case in front of you. How do you interact with that architect? How do you conform to the architect? saying that you have to make this secure or setting up the security system or defining these things that are important, but they're not like someone can write a use case and say, this happens, this happens, this happens. You know, how does that engagement happen between the two? And that also leads to the second question is... If there's an imbalance there, you know, very often developers think I want to be an architect because that's the next thing for me to do. That's how I get this control. This is how I can oversee things. But aren't really the roles very different with different skill sets? And just because you're very good as a developer, that doesn't mean you'd be a good architect. Because architect clearly has to have people skills that a developer does not necessarily have for example. So how do you see those roles, developer, architect, developing? You know, I ask you two things at once, so you can answer them in any order that comes to mind. One thing you mentioned is,
0: does a developer naturally progress through his or her career to become an architect, or is there a path in the IC chain that avoids being an architect altogether? That is true. If they do keep going up, right, they'll end up becoming a staff, senior staff, distinguished, or principal staff, distinguished fellow, whatnot. And that is a completely different path from the perspective of being an architect. The architecture group and the architect group is typically off of this path. And to join that group of architects, you can join typically from anything after staff. Like if you're one of these other levels, you could join the architecture group. And typically you'd be picked based on your expertise in an area because you need to be a subject matter expert, an SME. But as I mentioned, the areas that the architects cover tend to be broad areas like for example you could have somebody in charge of the data architecture for the entire company the company have 10 different databases should there be just one database so there'd be one architect that owns let's say all the data stores and there could be another architect that owns ai and what does it mean to be an ai architect right that architect would say you know are we using tensorflow or some other package across the board are we using both do we need gpus so the architect that owns a specific area, would have to be good at communicating, good at listening, right? And would have to keep abreast of all trends that are occurring, and eventually has to make some decisions and then sell the organization on those decisions. And then needs to find a way to start aligning developers and development to follow a new path. And that path that the developers must follow, right? Does not lead to quicker delivery of whatever feature is demanded by the roadmap, right? It's a distraction. So the architect has to find a way to plan, let's see for the next three years that we're gonna move in this direction. And it's gonna take three years and I have to cajole all of these orgs and convince them to move in this direction. So they do need to find a path of least resistance that will achieve the overall goal. And be flexible in changing that because what they're essentially doing is a distraction with respect to revenue and other things that are you know driving revenue or lowering costs. They're doing something that needs to be done to set the company up for success in like two to five years, but is a little bit painful and it requires extra work from everybody.
1: Right. Sometimes I like to point out to people what I like to call the Wall Street Journal effect. When things go wrong, you don't want your name on the front page of the Wall Street Journal because you had a security failure or something like that. And I guess you have to sort of motivate people in all kinds of different ways. It sounds very, very difficult to do because, again, you have to somehow come to an overlap between that use case and the direction that you see the company go. So it almost seems to be like you have to be as much an advocate as a technical person. In other words, you have to communicate the technical stuff to the management team to convince them that this is worth doing. And then you have to turn around and explain to the development side of things, why should we do this? It's a tremendous responsibility.
0: Yes. And typically, they don't do it on their own. A lot of companies have something called program management. And there will be a set of initiatives for very large companies the head of that business unit let's call it a you know gm or whoever the you know head of engineering for a business unit in a large company would have a set of initiatives and they might be 20 initiatives across the company that engineering need to deliver some of those would be new features and capabilities things that customers would see and other things would be things customers don't see right like a move to the cloud is an initiative cut costs by 10% would be an initiative a modernize, modernization is a big initiative every year, modernize hardware systems, whatnot to be compliant with security and other policies, right? There'd be a set of initiatives and then architects would be assigned to some of those initiatives, other initiatives would fall under a director's, or like a delivery group would own it. And then you'd have program managers that kind of own many of these and are tracking progress. And sort of the program managers are like the project managers or leaders that are making sure like progress is being made. But the how, right, is what's owned by the architect or the delivery people. That's the how. The why has been decided when the initiatives were prioritized. The what is also decided at that time. Like, what is our end goal? The how is, you know, the domain of the architects, and the when is
1: the domain of the program managers. You mentioned, of course, all these. Initiatives, and this obviously evolves over time. So, how do you stay current with all the things that the architect needs to know, or you guess that they might need to know? Because, presumably, when your director or vice president comes to you and says, What do you think of X? You don't want to be that's the first time you ever heard of X. So, how do you develop this expertise of not only understanding what you need to know now? but to think about where you want to be in the future, what you need to know in the future.
0: Right, that's a great question. I think the concept of servant leadership is very important for anybody who's in any type of leadership role. The higher up you go in an org, or at least in terms of visibility, the greater your visibility, the more you need to listen. And there's this, you know, the wisdom of the hill. right? There's some engineer in some delivery team, scrum team, that is working hard on a problem and he or she have done research, they might have expertise in the field and they're going to have a more informed opinion about how something should be built. They may not have the confidence to convey their opinion. They don't have the podium where they can convey to a large audience. And I think that's the biggest problem in most large companies. Sometimes they try to fix this by having internal architecture summits then there's this bias there where the architecture group invites people to speak at the summits. And so there's already a bias of who people already know. And sometimes people are invited based on other reasons that are not purely meritorious, right? So I feel like architects have to spend time with delivery teams. They have to listen. They have to learn. And then they have to kind of aggregate this knowledge, take whatever additional context they have, and then write it up in some sort of strategy document or position paper share it widely with the leaves right and encourage the leaves to comment not the managers and not the directors because unfortunately what happens in large companies is that people think about their bonus and their promotion and maybe even keeping their job and typically their circle
1: of peers are the ones that rate them yeah i think that even happens in smaller companies because once you get you know beyond a certain core you have this problem even in small companies.
0: Yes, and the mistake is that the greater visibility higher up you go, your peers are as uninformed as you are about on the ground technical issues. And then you're unfortunately kind of checking with them and keeping them informed so that when review time comes up, everything's fine. But really to do your job effectively, you should be listening all the way at the leaves and spending a lot of time with people and understanding what they're doing and giving them the credit right because that's where the credit is due for the ideas and knowledge you gain and outside of this of course there are conferences and there's social media that teaches you about a lot of things but in that space there is a lot of marketing like reverb like a lot of marketing amplification like you could have a new open source package they're going to be proponents of that package they're going to be reactive on twitter you may get the sense that there's a large community around it that might be ill-informed Really, what the architect should do is gain their knowledge from the anthill itself. And it's fine if they get other sources, but they should always check that with the people who the systems.
1: Right. Of course, there are certain disruptive technologies like the cloud for one, client-server was another, and organizations may be very resistant to this type of change. So it would seem that you need to balance what you hear internally with what you hear from the outside and i presume the architect has to develop some reliable outside channels whether it's you know plug for qcon or whatever technology they want to find out about they have to find these neutral sources outside
0: that's true you can always find out like emerging trends like qcon and other practitioner like centric conferences provide a way to learn about emerging trends but you know The larger your company, the greater the possibility that they're way behind anywhere near the emerging trends. And if the architect solely focuses on what's shiny and cool, because maybe he or she wants to put their stamp on having brought that capability or technology to a company, they also have to think about what's right for the company and how does that impact the engineers who have to migrate to this and to build it, right? Of course, everyone wants to be in the cloud. Everyone would be very happy and productive on the cloud. You know, There's a certain set of people at the company that have to manage costs, and that's a big concern. And typically, maybe that generates FUD in the company, right? Oh, well, it's going to cost too much, and how much will it cost? And that's a deterrent. And then you get into an endless cycle of who actually makes this decision and owns it, and it never moves. And some companies say, we're going to move. Here's a timeline. We're just going to do it, and we'll manage costs as we move forward. And I think that's a more progressive way of making a very big change at a company.
1: Right, because the history is littered with companies, some of which will be able to adapt and some of them who are not willing to adapt. and in the end, they go out of business. So it's clearly a very delicate balancing act. And based on what you're saying, it seems like the architect is at the center of that because the architect can see further and is responsible for more things than a developer or even a manager that's focused on their day-to-day responsibilities.
0: Yes. And you know while the term architect is glamorous, I feel like the job is definitely not, right? It is very much, what do you call it? Like when you do something, it's very painful, but it's like a labor of love, right? It's a sort of a labor of love because when you're a staff, you're in the delivery chain, you have resources, you're attached to a manager you can convince that manager or that director that this is important, and then he or she will corral the resources and marshal what you need to get to achieve it. An Artex sits outside of this chain, has no dedicated resources, has to gain the trust of a lot of people, starting at the leaf level, has to start like a whisper campaign, right? That enough people have to be excited about something for it to change. That is, you know, a very tough job. It's a labor of love. And Ideally, there's no, I think this also happens, there is no fame or gratitude attached to getting it done because at the end of the day, the team that delivers it will gain the promotions, right? So the architect is doing something he or she believes in, is good for the company, and also good for all the teams that are adopting it, and can somehow corral them in some way, urge them and convince them and influence them to join them on this journey.
1: Well, there's an old saying that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't insist on taking credit.
0: Yes, that's actually very true, right? An idea that is popular is an idea owned by many people. And I think the more people you hear talking about something and maybe taking credit for it, that's how you know your idea will take hold. And then you're being a successful architect, not even being the voice behind it, enabling others to be the voice behind it.
1: So, I've asked you a couple of questions about sort of being an architect in general. And now I would like to get a little more personal to sort of ask you, you know, what I like to call the architect's questionnaire. For example, what is your favorite part of being an architect? I would say it's just exposure, right? I love learning.
0: And as an architect, you will be exposed to everything in your domain, right? assuming you're an SME architect. In the domain, you'll be exposed to everything in your domain. So it's an amazing way of just learning about the capabilities. You'll be attached to some area for a period of time. So you have this view of here's what our company needs, here's what the industry offers, here's some new emerging players, here's some decisions I've made. Here's like a path to adoption. Here's my challenges with adoption. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about organizational communication and persuasion, influence. It's a tremendous
1: opportunity to learn. That's what I love. And of course, no job is perfect. What is your least favorite part of being an architect? I think one tough
0: aspect of being an architect is possibly the feeling of isolation, right? As an architect, you own an area, you're expected to be an adult, right? A leader, you're a leader, right? Leaders tend to be kind of lonely, right? You don't have a team. You have a series of groups and organizations that you work with. That can be a little bit tough. And maybe if you're part of an architecture team, you go to lunch together, you have this sort of camaraderie. But, you know, the more senior you get as an IC, you
1: tend to feel this isolation. And that can be quite crippling if you're not prepared to deal with it.
0: Yeah, I think it's a personality thing. And I think it's, you know, as a developer, you love to put your headphones on, listen to your favorite music, code away for four hours. As an architect, you should really enjoy working with people, walking the floor, meeting people, saying hi to them, because at the end of the day, that's what you gain. It's sort of the happiness from meeting people. That social aspect is maybe
1: the big positive feedback you get. Right. So along those lines, is there anything you know, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally about architecture or being an architect that really appeals to you? So, you
0: know, I'm the chief architect for a startup company that I work at right now. I'm also the head of engineering, so I wear two hats, but I started as a chief architect and when I joined, I just joined as a developer. I spent the first two, two and a half years just writing code, learning from the team and, you know, building parts of the system teaching everyone around me. I think I have about 40 to 50 people under me, but teaching them, working with them one by one or you know, in groups, teaching them how things would be built, hearing how they're building things, raising bars, right? That's a really key part that to be successful, I have to train everyone to be developer slash architect slash people leader, right? And so that I'm not needed at the company, right? And any company I've worked at, my goal is to not be needed, right? That everyone should be able to do a little bit of everything and be better off. So I typically have a path for everyone, right? Uh, if you started off as an operations person, you should start writing scripts. If you're a script writer, start writing applications. If you're an application writer, start writing software infrastructure. Your software infrastructure person start doing something more complex. Everyone needs to go up that path and everyone needs to be exposed to education. Like I will send teams off to learn things, right? Because unless teams are improving, the company is not going to improve. So a large portion of time goes into training and people learning and pushing their boundaries. And it should feel like a fire hose. They should feel like they're extending their college experience to a large extent. And I feel a reward from seeing that.
1: It almost sounds like, and perhaps, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there was an old TV program in the United States. And who was that masked man? In other words, you know the architect was there, but their personality does not come through. It's the effects of what they did that matters. Is that a Lone Ranger reference? It may be. It may be. It may be the Lone Ranger. You know Who was that masked man? And that seems to be what you're describing because the effects of what you do live on, not the fact that you were the one... That did. I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's what it sounds like.
0: Yes. I'll give you like a sort of interesting example. So I worked at Netflix for a little over four years, I think four and a half years. And when I joined, there were only 100 people at the company. I think when I left, I had 90% seniority over the rest of the company, right? And the Netflix model was the following, that it says manager set context. They just go to the engineers and say, this is what's important. And it's up to that engineer to make all of the decisions about what they're doing. And the corollary to this is that, well, any engineer can set that context for any other engineer. And each engineer designs their system. There is no architecture board, right? There's no no one to review. They design, build, operate their systems, everything. And they're given requirements from everybody at the company. And anyone can set the context for anyone else. So in a sense, every engineer is learning multiple skills, right? It's very entrepreneurial. They had these five or six company values and you were rated against them. One was something like you have to be communicative. It's very important to be communicative. Two, you had to have impact. Three, you had to have curiosity. Four, you had to be courageous. So these are the four. And I think five is you know just be a nice person, right? Like play well in a team. So if you think about this, what they didn't want was like wallflowers. They didn't want people who are kind of shy and quiet. Everybody had to have an entrepreneurial mindset. So they had to be curious about systems. How could this be better? They had to be courageous to take that risk. They had to communicate to everyone else what they were about to do. And in the end, whatever they did ideally had impact, right? They'd be judged by these four things. And obviously along the way, they shouldn't burn bridges, and everyone were peers, like there were no titles at the company, right? At that time, everyone was just software engineer, senior software engineer. And everyone had 10 to 12 years of experience and everyone was supposed to be a fully formed adult. These, you know, five values were how you were rated every rating cycle. So the way you were rated is anybody in the company had to write qualitative examples of how you achieved these five things. And if you were like a kind of quiet person, you didn't do much, you thought you could kind of sail by and not do anything. Unfortunately, it might have been the the end of the road for you at Netflix, right? They said something like mediocre performance gets a generous severance. And that kind of way of thinking is how I've always thought wherever I've been. Every engineer should feel this way. This is what's important.
1: So they have to be passionate, you know, because unless you're passionate, unless you, again, it's almost... You know, emotionally invested, spiritually invested, if you want to say, because you're not going to be able to achieve that. Because the flip side of what I remember about Netflix is they wanted you to be incredibly entrepreneurial, but on the other hand, totally responsible. Because if it broke, you fixed it.
0: Yep, yep. Accountable, right? You had to be, I forgot what the term was, but yes, exactly that. You had to be responsible. Teams were weakly coupled, tightly aligned. That's one thing. And then you had freedom and responsibility. You had full freedom. You also had full responsibility, which was a great way of thinking about
1: things. but so it forces you to make good judgments. So in other words, architects, sometimes they're the ones for sort of responsible, if you want to say, for keeping that culture, that religion, if you wish, alive.
0: Could be like a Jedi, right? Or it could be something that anyone in any team already does, but they don't have the podium. They don't have the voice. And I think what an architect can do, they can lend their privilege, right? And I think that's a big part of it. So architects tend to have visibility. What they can do is lend privilege to others in the organization to make sure not only do they get credit for their ideas, not only do they get rewarded for their hard work, but they have a voice and a way to share their experience because that's what you want to do. You want to build an equitable, egalitarian kind of society within a company where your title doesn't matter. Your level shouldn't matter. So I'll give an example. When I joined PayPal, I worked in the data infra organization. I was a chief data engineer and I helped form like these 10 scrum teams. And then the scrum teams, you know, were called like three in a box. So you'd have a PM, a product owner, the scrum master, and the tech lead. You have these three. Typically the scrum master was a manager of the team of, you know, that had this scrum in it. The product owner was part of the product org. And then the tech lead was whoever in that group knew the most about the technology and was leading by the best example and could have been the most junior person in that team. And I enforce that. It should not be the person with the highest title or level. It's the person that everyone's following.
1: That's a very tough thing to do. I mean, there are lots of ways to achieve it. I know, for example, in the United States Supreme Court, the judge is supposed to state what their opinions are. It's the least senior judge that gives their opinion first. So they won't be influenced by the more senior people. And that's very tough to do. But again, as you say, that somebody has to be the one to sort of keep that spirit alive.
0: And one of the things is, you know, I joined the team. I would join one of the teams. I would start coding. And I would not ship until I got reviews. And I wanted everyone to just forget about titles, right? And hierarchy, because that's how they get a voice, right? That's how a junior person gets a voice. Netflix also had this model, right? Where nobody had titles. Like everyone was a senior software engineer for this reason. You could have 30 years of experience, 10 years of experience. If you enter a room, you shouldn't wonder who's in this room. Can I say what I need to say? That was a wonderful practice.
1: And also in my experience, I don't know if it's yours, at some point, more years of experience does not really help you. Technically, you mean? Yeah, technically. In other words, yes, you may have certain skills because you're around longer and exposure to more things. But in terms of judgment, you get to a certain point where, you know, 10 years, 20 years worth of experience, you know, your judgment should be honed at that point.
0: And the interesting thing is that depending on which company you go to, right, the team, some team you join, like uh, the examples I had, the average tenure of the people in the team was about three to five years of work experience. So there was a big jump. There's a big leap between maybe I have 20 plus and they have five. So judgment played a big factor. Innovation, actually, you could say comes from the youth, right? So they're the most innovative. They have many new ways of trying things. And then the judgment is something you gain with experience and time. But of course, the scrum teams are joined where there are people with 10, 15 years They've developed that judgment. They know the area really well. Those teams don't require a guiding hand as much. And probably, I mean, I just left them alone. They were successful on their own. And the teams that are successful don't need an architect at all, to be honest. And, you know, it's something that you see, I think, psychologically at big companies, you know, sort of like they say, success has many fathers and failure has none. You see that all the time, right? A project that's doing really poorly is actually the one that needs the architect. And once it succeeds, you'll see a lot of people want to be a part of that team. That's a right time for the architect to leave
1: because you know it's a success. And that requires sort of the strength of character for the architect to leave and not to stay with the success because it feeds their ego.
0: And I think it's all about safety, right? So as an architect, you'll have a manager, right, at some level of company. That manager should have an appreciation for this that Your name is not coming up all the time, so how do you know what you're doing, right? So that you have to feel some measure of safety that I don't need to have my name. And I think the culture of the company matters a lot, and definitely the culture at the top matters a lot, and that trusted relationship with the person you're reporting to matters a great deal, especially if you've worked with them in the past. But if you join a company and you don't know your manager, you have not developed this trust, right? How do you establish it? That's a challenge. It happens. Otherwise, like, for example, the company I'm at right now, I mean, I work with the CTO and who's also an investor at Netflix for four and a half years. He's not involved in my day to day
1: at all because we have established that trust. So, on a more personal note, what is it about architecture that you love and what about it that you hate?
0: Architecture, not the role, right? Yeah. Honestly, I love working and learning from others who build software architecture. And I think the fundamentals haven't changed at all, right? You always talk about performance. You talk about availability and scalability. I think those set of things have not changed. Technologies that implement them have changed, but the rule book that we use to assess whether technology is doing what it should is informed by our experience and not by the API documentation of that technology. And what I find today is people without that background will look at a technology, maybe it's in Kubernetes or some service mesh thing, and they'll say, here's what I can do. And I provide the insight of, here's what you should be able to do. And I don't need to be an expert in that technology. I just ask them, here's what you should be able to do. And then they will mention, I cannot do this with this technology. And then I say, that's a problem because you should be able to do this. If you wrote this yourself, if you can imagine that this is how it should work, This technology should do that, especially in distributed systems, fault detection, retries, all the stuff around this. I've come across it in my current startup where we have Amazon ALBs and they talk to some sort of ingress controller and that ingress controller sends a request to Kubernetes services and pods. There's this whole problem about auto-scaling when you do rolling retries. How is the connection and experience managed for the customer when it's graceful you expect there to be no interruption at all to a customer, right? And when someone's deep in a technology and they love a technology like Kubernetes, they'll say, here's what Kubernetes can do.
1: Yeah, but presumably from the architect's point of view, your statement of this is what it should be do" comes from your understanding of what the customers want, what the business requirements are, as opposed to the technologists who very often, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, a technology Seeking a problem to solve.
0: Mm-hmm. And Let's say we talk about the ilities. We talk about the ilities. Lifecycle management of nodes have to fit into the life cycle of a request that passes through your service. And a customer and a PM would never say that when we do rollouts, we don't want, like, they'd never point out. When we have a rollout, the customer shouldn't see a problem. So, you know, that availability problem is a general problem. And the technologies fit in to the solution because it's not a single technology, it's multiple. And that handoff and how everything works is a technical set of requirements of how everything should work together. The architect or senior engineer, someone with experience would outline it. It doesn't have to be an architect. It could be a senior engineer that outlines it all. And then maybe that engineer is in a team that have solved this problem and it should be a general pattern applied everywhere. Architect learns about this. What can he or she do? He can start promoting this idea throughout the company. He or she didn't ideate it, but he or she does have contact points with every other team. And the lead for a delivery group is on task to deliver every two weeks. Doesn't have the cycles to do this. So that's what an architect can do. So what profession other than being an architect would you like to attempt? Uh, That's a good question. I haven't thought about that, but I have done a few different things. I started as a chemist. Then I worked in semiconductors for a bit Then I dabbled a little bit in electrical engineering, which is your field, but I'm not an expert in any of these areas. I'm just someone who dabbled along the way. And then I only found software maybe when I was 24, 25. Before that, I had done these different things and I've now been in software for over 20 years. And personally, I am a people person. So I like working with people and I love learning from all the folks around me And I think with my level of experience and voice and knowledge with maybe how to communicate, I can be of service to people in the sense that I can help them grow. I can help promote the voices that would not be heard otherwise. But outside of this area, I've always wanted to be a teacher. I'm always amazed by what teachers do and how little recognition they get for what they do. The teachers in my life have had a profound impact on where I am coming from a poor country, from a family, you know, that two generations ago didn't have an education. Education was the way we got out of our situation.
1: I would want to be a teacher. I think that's what I would do. That's a very noble profession. And, you know, given that you say you want to be a teacher, would you ever see yourself not being an architect anymore? Yes. I think being an architect
0: is a role you have at a company because that's the thing that company needs. In my current company, I could just be called a senior lead engineer. I need mean, to have a title that makes some sense, but I could be easily a distinguished engineer or fellow. For a startup, chief architect made sense. A fellow for a small startup maybe doesn't make as much sense. But you know, as an architect, you're a resource for others, but I'm happy to hand that off, right? Because my goal is not to stay in a place for very long, to be honest. It's to experience the world, And the world is very large. And I'll be in a place for a period of time, help grow everyone to take over my role and move on to another thing.
1: But as an architect or something else? Yeah, it could be anything else. And when a project is done, what do you like to hear from the clients or your
0: team? I would say from the team, I'd like to hear that they enjoyed working on it. So typically, there should be multiple wins for hard work. And PayPal, I established a few different ways to reward people, right? One is promotion. So I was heavily involved in like the promotions, even though none of them directly reported to me. But if they worked hard and I saw their work firsthand, of course, I can give an informed opinion at the promotion reviews. I'm also letting them speak at conferences, finding a way for them. At PayPal, I owned all of uh, technical branding, like technical brand development for the CTO's organization which was you know, the shared services, probably a couple thousand people. But I also helped other business units promote what they were doing. And some of this was uh, open source. Some of this was blog writing. Some of this was talks. And every quarter, at least in the data org, we released an open source project. And what
1: about from clients?
0: Oh, from clients. I'm usually not in the path of clients, right? The clients... They have their line of communication with the manager, the product owner. I'm just sitting in. Yes, I think having clients co-present at uh, quarterly reviews with the delivery team is a really good success story. It's a good way for everyone in the room to understand how it impacted the client. Just having the delivery team say we launched project XYZ doesn't mean much unless you have the client saying, Here's how I use it. This is how it's made my life better. And that is a practice we adopted for our quarterly reviews.
1: To sort of wrap things up, is there anything that comes to your mind that you would like to say that I didn't ask or didn't come up?
0: No, I think you've covered everything. You know, I give mentoring advice to a, a series of people and often people ask me, how did I become an architect? And one thing I've followed in my life is follow your interest and your passion. Follow your interest and passion. Don't stay in a job too long because you want to be promoted and you think that external affirmation of your effort or value means anything. Keep learning, contribute where you can, right? And don't worry about promotions. Don't worry about your career. As long as you follow your interest, you'll succeed
1: eventually. That's all that matters. Well, this has been very interesting. I thank you for spending some time and maybe we'll get a chance to do this again sometime. Thank you for your time, Michael.
0: I appreciate it.